0: Star Trek: The Rip-Off Podcast within a podcast that is now a spin-off podcast where I ask Sam questions about episodes of Star Trek that we watched this week. I'm your host Tessa and with me is the titular Sam.
1: How you doing?
0: This week we watched Whom Gods Destroy and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. So let's just dive right in. Whom Gods Destroy is the 14th episode of the 3rd season. Of the original series, written by Lee Irvin, based on a story by Lee Irvin and Jerry Soule, and directed by Herb Wallerstein, it was first broadcast on January 3, 1969. Kirk and Spock beam down to Elba II, which is not at all significant, to an institution for the last remaining people in the Federation considered criminally insane, with medicine that might eradicate mental illness altogether. They quickly realize that the inmates have taken over the facility under the leadership of Garth, a former starship captain, with delusions of grandeur. Garth embarks on a cat and mouse game with Kirk to try to trick him into giving up the password to gain control of the Enterprise. Sam, what were your first thoughts on this episode?
1: Before we get to that, you talked for so long I have three things. Let's backtrack. First of all, whomst did God destroy on their last battlefield? (laughs) Two, Able Was I, Ere I Saw Elba. And number three, Party On Wayne, Party On Garth.
0: I, I do love halfway through viewing this, you were like, this planet's name is Elba? Also, about two seconds into this, you were like, that's Batgirl. So that's all your reactions from this episode, right?
1: I wouldn't know that voice anywhere, even if she's not wearing the wig. And I know it's not really apropos because Yvonne Craig plays Batgirl, which is like, you know, we've talked about how the Batman 66 TV show was a seminal part of my youth in syndication. Because unlike Tessa, I am not a vampire with Benjamin Buttons. (laughs) I did not watch the original run of Batman 66. So, you know, I knew Yvonne Craig. I will hold my comment about the other Batman cameo until we start talking about it. Man, Yvonne Craig. Definitely one of my first celebrity crushes, which, you know, like, what is time, really?
0: Well, actually, let's back up. Before we talk about Marta, who is played by Yvonne Craig, let's talk about mental illness and utopia. The premise of this episode is that because the Federation is a utopia, they have managed to almost completely eradicate mental illness. Kirk actually says this in the Captain's Log voiceover at the beginning, that these are the 14 people left who are criminally insane in the Federation, and they think that they found a cure for them, which, what, what is this cure? Like, is it, like, aerosolized serotonin? Like, I, I don't know. Anyway, can we have that? I don't want
1: that, Tesla. Can you make that happen? <laughs>
0: What did you think about the way that mental illness was presented in this episode in its relationship with utopia?
1: First of all, typical Tessa, I want to talk about Yvonne Craig. You want to talk about mental illness in utopia. Fine. I'll get there. Fine. I'll play your game. There's a reason why so much of the utopias that philosophers have constructed take place on. Islands or a hidden refuge in the mountains, or I crashed my plane and I couldn't get here on purpose if I tried, or at the very least, as Thomas More had, like not an island but like an archipelago that was like unreachable by land. There's a reason, and the reason is this a utopia can be easily ruined by other people because, as Jean Paul Sartre claimed hell is other people and guess what it is but that's that's the problem here is that you can't have everybody in a utopia you have to pick and choose and of course we could go back to the other episode with the platonians and uh, the other element of that is you cannot have a person in charge of the utopia for too long or they'll become mad with power and then we're back to mental illness again so a true utopia the way that we're being asked to conceive of it in this show is communism. I'm sorry, it is. It, it, because basically Why are
0: you apologizing.
1: Well, I mean, you're probably... you probably gasped audibly when I used the C word, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I know we're not supposed to use the C word on this podcast because it's a clean podcast and then I use the C word anyway. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're going to have to put a content warning at the beginning of this episode.
0: Content warning. Communism.
1: Don't say the word, man. You're going to have to edit it out now. But the whole point is that utopias, as a geographical construct, as a place that can really happen, are almost always socialist in nature. Everybody has a role, and they do it, and they're all happy. And, of course, the reason that all these become communist in execution is you always have to have that central government to make sure everything happens because, as you know, nobody will just do what they're supposed to do. But the real problem, and this episode points it out, is that a utopia requires everybody to be on the same page, which means everybody has to agree, and I think I said this to you during this episode, You know, for a utopia, there's a whole lot of people shooting at other people, (laughs) which just tells you this is impossible. The idea of a utopian future, like a point in time where we are doing utopia is not possible. And so it further stands that this is always going to be a problem, mental illness, because You know, it's not like some nefarious evil where you're like, screw you, I won't do your communism. I mean, we're not Republicans. We're just mentally ill. And you can't get rid of that because that's just people. That's what I think. It's just a long way of saying, like, of course this is a problem and it's a problem you can never solve. And, like, there'd be just 12 of them, whatever.
0: 14. But. Yeah, that's.
1: That helps. OK,
0: 14. What you, you just 14. said what you just said made me think of a few things. Oh, One, it made me think of the way in which Tony Morrison says the problem with place-based utopias is who isn't let in? Who isn't who is outside the boundaries, right? Because part of the problem is with these utopias is that a lot of times mentally ill people are outside of the utopia, right? Like they're being kept in an institution. Part of it is racism, right? There's not a lot of black people in these place-based utopias, even though Star Trek does have a few.
1: Right. And I mean, you know, so like, sure, 14 mentally ill people. Explain Khan. Right. Right? Explain. And you remember what I said, you know, when they were like, we're going to take you to the the most evil person in this prison. I was like, please let it be mud. Please let it be mud. Please let it be mud. (laughs) And it wasn't, but also mud right that it like that dude's not gonna work in a utopia
0: exactly, so that those are those are things that you have to ask yourself. The other thing is is that this show, even though it is utopian, also still has a very like the I'm talking about the original series, not Star Trek in general, but it has like a very like western expansion the the final frontier like type of attitude towards it, and we could ask a lot of questions on whether that's actually something that could exist within Utopia, right? Like, can, can you have that attitude and have Utopia at the same time? That's not really, that has nothing to do with this at all. It's just something I thought of when you were talking about that. The other thing I thought of, which brings us right back around to Batman, is, is this Arkham Asylum? I was getting real Arkham Asylum, Joker, or Harley Quinn vibes off of this episode.
1: Uh, uh, I mean, I'm going to say no, and here's why. I did not see any Riddler trophies.
0: Talk about Riddler trophies. They suck. The Riddler trophies do, in fact, suck. Oh my god. Garth, the main antagonist of this, who can shape shift, and we are led to believe that so he's a really decorated starship captain. Kirk's constantly talks about how he's like the model for what a starship captain should be. That his like exploits are taught in the academy, but he was grievously wounded at some point, crashed on a planet, went to a planet where they taught him how to shapeshift or like control the molecules of his body so he could heal himself. The implication is, is that being able to do this was just too much for his sanity. And so he went insane, tried to kill the people of this planet, which I want to hear from the people of this planet that he went to. Like, are they like, oh my God, we will never teach a human how to do this again. They can clearly not handle it. Like, seriously. Anyway, what did you think about Garth? His shape-shifting ability, his very Napoleon-esque thing that he's got going on, the way that he tries to interact with Kirk.
1: I mean, and, and based on what you just said, this is clearly Stephen Strange. Like, what would actually happen to somebody like Stephen Strange? Oh, I'm going to use my power for good because you were a good person before? Sure, let's say. Uh, so, here's what should have happened. Okay? You ready? This is, this is the Star Trek episode that should have happened. Take me to the prisoner. Well, I'll take you to the prisoner. Spock leans over and says to Kirk, Okay, look, dude, something's, something's not wrong. It's gonna, we're going to get in there, and it's going it, to be the guy. It's going to be the warden, and this guy has shapeshifted into the warden. I don't really know how, but that is clearly what's happened. And then they walk down the passageway and, you know, walk down and they get a good look. And yep, it's the warden. And before Garth has time to do anything, he's been Vulcan death pinched and it's over. And that's the end of the episode. This has been an episode of what would have really happened in that episode if these characters were actually true to their characterizations. But nope. Spock's an idiot for a little while.
0: It's convenient how that happens. Very illogical. So the the plot can happen. But yeah, I think Garth in a lot of ways functions as a double for Kirk. Like, what if Kirk had even more delusions of grandeur?
1: Again, he's actual Stephen Strange, and Kirk is like the Stephen Strange we want. Does anybody want Stephen Strange? Like, does anybody want? It's like Star-Lord. Who wants... Who wants Starlord? We just have to put up with him. Which, come to think of it, Chris Pat's a great casting for that, actually. Anyway, that's, I mean, you're right. I guess they are mirror images.
0: All right. I know you actually just want to talk about Marta, who is, uh, there are 14 inmates in this. We don't really get to see a lot of them, besides just kind of standing around doing whatever Garth wants. But we do get more of Marta, who seems to be the only female inmate. She is obviously an Orion sex worker. We haven't really talked a lot about the Orion slave girls yet. We've seen them before. We saw one in the cage. We saw one in the menagerie. We've seen them before in certain situations. We can talk about the Orientalism of the type of dancing that she does. Although I did find it incredibly hilarious that Spock says, oh yeah, the Vulcan children dance like this. I would like to see that episode. Thank you very much. But what do we think about the pathological liar who tries to pass Shakespeare off as her own, tries to kill Kirk because she wants to sleep with him? Marta, played by Yvonne Craig.
1: Okay. First of all, this this character was awesome. And, <laughs> and I, I have two things that I want to say. And I know what you're thinking. The first one's going to be a joke answer and the second one's going to be serious. Well, joke's on you. They're both joke answers. The first one is... I like Tatiana Maslani as much as the next person who watched the first season of Orphan Black and thought it was cool and watched the second season and went, yikes, and stopped watching. But, hear me out Marvel, I know she's DC, but like we're okay with that now. Like they go back and forth all the time. Time Machine. Go back, get Yvonne Craig. She's Apparently already cool with the green makeup. We're not going to have a J-Law situation. You're also not going to treat her terribly, so it's not going to be another J-Law situation. There's your She-Hulk right there. Yvonne Craig. That's, that's my idea. If you're going to use time travel, use it for something good. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Number two. Every show's better with a Harley Quinn character. That just proves it. Right? That's it. That's it. That's all I got. It was awesome.
0: I just, I love the scene where she's like, I write poetry. And then immediately just deadpan starts quoting Shakespeare. And they're just like, you didn't write that. And she's like, you can't prove that I didn't.
1: It's, it's so, like, I've never had a student do that. <laughs> I've had students blatantly plagiarize and they just crumble when you call them on it. Like, they're so surprised that you called them on it. They just wilt, and it's like, come on, just once. Try to sell it. Yeah, you wrote Song of Myself. Sure you did. I would... I, if somebody just had the, the guts to pass it off as their own, I would... No further questions. You get an A. Like, that's commitment.
0: And finally... What did you think about the other side of this episode, which were these very brief scenes of Scotty and McCoy trying to figure out what the heck is going on down there? They keep asking this person who looks like Kirk for a password. It's obviously Garth. He doesn't know the password. They start trying to break into this planet, which is apparently so well shielded that you can't get into it.
1: What if William Wallace (laughs) had been like, I'm not in your room? I'm not in... You can come in, but what's the password? What's the password? What's the password? Hey. Hey. You want Scotland? You can have it, but what's the password? What's the password? What's the password?
0: (laughs) They're so concerned. They keep looking at each other with much, much concern. And they're like brainstorming. Like, McCoy's like... Can we just put someone else down at a different part of the planet? And Scotty's like, no, they'd all die by the time they get there. And you can see the look in McCoy's face. He's weighing the possibility. Like, Would it be worth it?
1: Okay, hear me out. What if we created a, a ray that would shrink somebody down, and then we injected that person, inner space style, yes, that is an 80s film reference, into another person? Somebody who is wearing, I don't know, a red shirt. Gotti looks vaguely offended, but lets it go. And so then you just transport that person down, and they die. But the person inside is protected by the meat suit that just sacrificed himself for the team. And then that person went. And save them. So like Ant-Man style, like punched him while he was getting bigger. And then Chewbacca showed up with spider legs. That's all I got.
0: I'm sorry. I said finally, but I actually do have one more question for you. That's really important. The scene where Spock has to choose between the real Kirk and Garth pretending to be Kirk.
1: I mean, seriously, that is the easiest thing in the world. Kirk is the biggest turd. So all you have to do is exactly what Spock did. Figure out which one's the biggest turd, which he instantly did. That's my whole point about this episode. Oh, you figured that out there, but you didn't know the obvious thing before? Come on, dude, get your act together.
0: All right, moving on to our second episode of the week. Let that be your last Battlefield, which is the 15th episode of the third season. Written by Oliver Crawford, based on a story by Gene L. Kuhn, writing under his pen name Lee Cronin. I feel like this, this week was all adaptations. We're doing short stories into episodes of television. It was directed by Judd Taylor, and it was first broadcast on January 10th, 1969. Very famous episode. The Enterprise intercepts a stolen shuttlecraft while on a mission to decontaminate a colony and picks up a unique half-black and half-white alien, Lokai, claiming to be a political refugee. They quickly pick up another passenger who is half-white and half-black, Belly, who claims to be a law enforcement rep seeking to capture and return Lokai to their home planet. This is a very famous episode of Trek. Most people have seen the half-white, half-black. They kind of know the premise of this already. I'm just going to throw it out there. The giant elephant that's not even in the room, it's like the room itself. painted
1: on their faces!
0: Racism metaphor. Mm -hmm. So both of these people, Loki and Belly, come from Arianus, which is a planet that is populated by these duochromatic beings, but some of them have white on the left side. Some of them have white on the right side and vice versa. And they're incredibly racist towards each other. I don't even know how to ask the question. Thoughts? Give me
1: the mic. Okay. There are are many things to say here, and I just have to start with this one. Holy criminal cameo, Batman! (laughs) Now let me get close back up to the mic again. Now that I have that out of my system, you know, it's going to be a real shame because we've only got two more episodes of this after this episode. And I don't know if we're going to talk about the motion pictures or just not do this again until we start TNG. I, I, I mean, the, can we help ourselves is really the question about the motion pictures. But I will say this, having seen three of those, I'm not, I just can't have the same volume of jokes once we move past this series because, like, it was not as silly. I mean, I'm sure I'll find things, but, you know, it's just not this wall-to-wall jokey. And speaking of things that are jokey, this episode says that, yeah, sure, the whites are racist, but have you considered that black people are racist too? And my response to that is, what a joke. That's racist. Star trek you can't be racist when you don't have power. that is a key part of racism is using your power over somebody else. so for an episode to say that you know racism is bad, and both sides do it, well you your both sides ism that out yeah you're bleeping that out, but yeah, that's what I think about this episode it's cute that the it's like oh. Oh, they're like the same people. This one just has the white part on the left side of his face, and and this one has the white part on the right side of his face. Well, obviously the people with the white on the right side of their face need to just go to hell and die. I mean, nice try, guys. Nice try. Like, I mean, I'm glad we watched this episode because truly, it, it it is a bold move. It is a bold choice. It is assimilation at its very worst. Which is not the worst thing in the world, but it's clearly not the best, and I thought we were doing Utopia.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I want to talk about the Utopia part of it here in a moment, but it's funny because I didn't get the both sides of this episode until about halfway through the episode. Like, the first part of the episode, I think, talks really well about racism, if a little heavy-handedly, because you get Belle, played by Frank Warson, like you said, another Batman, Character or Batman actor? Oh, could you imagine if ballet was in Batman?
1: Riddle me this, Batman. What's black and white all over me? <laughs> and then Batman says, "Dead eyes him in the face." What's black and white and red all over your face? Cue music.
0: Pow! Bang! I would. Z- I could see it. I Valley, can see it. Quark. I can. <laughs> He has this like monologue where they where they meet in the sick bay and he has this argument with Lokai and he basically says like it's so shocking to me watching this now. He basically says all of the white supremacy talking points that we've been hearing recently in terms of like well like slavery was we we did away with that hundreds of years ago and You know, we wouldn't treat you this way if you would just, like, clean up your act. And, you know, like, that I thought was the most powerful part of the episode in terms of actually representing talking points that are very harmful. And Star Trek is telling us that they're harmful, which I appreciated. But, yeah, about halfway through the episode, you realize that they're starting to do the both sides of racism. And the twist of the end especially, I think, drives that home. What did you think about the twist where they actually arrive on Arianus and they discover that literally both, both sides of this race war have all killed each other off?
1: Okay. Once again, I quite predictably have two things. First, it's like they had George Wallace have a guest spot on the show and just say the regular crap that he says, and then they put him in blackface and had him say the exact same thing again. That this is slightly less bad than that. I mean, that that's what's happening, right? I just can't say this enough. That's terrible. Second of all, in the year 2021, it is not shocking that they're all dead. Of course they're all dead. We're going to be dead next week for the same reason. Get it together.
0: Right, but the implication I think there is that the people who were oppressed, who are Loci's people, are just as much to blame for them all oh, killing oh, right, each other right, right, right. as. Belles' people, which to me, I'm like, no, Belles in the wrong. Like his people have clearly been oppressing these other people. So I guess that's the part where I was like, this feels like both sides ism Why aren't we protecting Loki more?
1: So I would I would like at this moment to to compare this episode to another beloved by many piece of pop culture, which if you really don't look too closely, you won't see how it treats race in a very, very bad way. And, of course, is, is a giant pop culture touchstone just like Star Trek. In fact, at the end of the season of Lost that we watched, there's clearly a reference to it. But I got to say, the payoff at the end of this episode where they realize that, you know, you bastards, you did it. You killed them. Charlton Heston did it better at the end of Planet of the Apes. That's all I'm going to say. It's just as racist if you look too closely. You know, crying. But but but, you know, unlike Touch of Evil, Charlton Heston nails this one.
0: Do they get bonus points for trying, or should they have just avoided the topic of race altogether?
1: I don't know. When you know that had they done anything more slightly anti-racist, standards and practices would have noped that out of existence. And in fact, who knows? Maybe they did, and they this was the only way they thought they could get it on the air. In that case, you can say that something is better than nothing, because... Any movement of the needle is good, but at the same time, it does feel like maybe a one step forward and like a shoulder lean followed by one step back. I could say their heart's in the right place, but that's kind of the thing about, you know, the the things that we do with anti-racism and anti-racist pedagogy is that we say the best you can do, if that's assimilationism, gotta try harder, man. And, and we can't go back and tell them to try harder. This is what we have. And, but, you know, that's, that's American history. The history of people who realize that racism is bad, those who do. And time after time after time, they say, you know what would happen? If we didn't just yeet the racists into the sun once and for all, what if you just tried harder? What if you just worked harder? What if you just took these jobs? What if you were just nice and did the literacy test when you went to vote? What if more people just voted? What if we have a majority, but we need, like, a super majority? So if you give us the super majority, we'll end racism. At some point, it's not enough. And so I'm not willing to go back and say for this episode of TV that it's not good enough. It isn't. But it's still, like, it's still groundbreaking, I guess. I mean, the ground is awful soft. It wasn't hard to break it. They just had to try. But no, it's not enough by any measure. So, you know, it is what it is.
0: I mean, I agree. I do find the crew's reaction to the racism to almost be more interesting than the actual plot of the Lokai belly race war part of it. Because, like you said, this is supposed to be utopia. And we get that very clearly in the terms of the crew do not seem to understand what's going on. They, There's a really good scene at one point where Loki tells the crew, like, just kill, kill Belly, which on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, maybe we should just kill him. But the crew does not understand what he's asking them to do. Chekhov says, we don't kill people. And it's just, it's really interesting to me that the crew just seems so naive about what is happening here. Like, in the Federation Racism apparently has been so eradicated that they don't understand the type of discourse that's happening between Lokai and Belly, even though several episodes earlier we had Day of the Dove, which is supposed to also kind of be about racism.
1: I think that conversation in the, um, I guess we'll call that the canteen, <laughs> is, is really interesting because it is evidence. That the people who wrote this episode understood what they were doing. They understood what racism is. And if you understand what racism is, you should know that what you're doing in this episode won't really fix the problem. Again, it may just be the best you can do for TV, but I say that because their response, right? Uh, And it is the most racist response. This is how you know, like, right? There are like many, many ways that you can spot a racist. It's really not that hard. But one of the dead giveaways is when somebody says something racist and the other person says, oh, I don't know. He's making some valid points, which is what happened. It's like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. What? You mean hadn't thought about it? What if it was okay to be racist? Get out. Directed by Jordan Peele.
0: <laughs> which proves the point, Yeah, right? It's the same movie. Right. Well, I was thinking about the scene because you have the scene with Kirk and Spock in the canteen or in I don't know where it is. But then you have the other scene where it's Chekhov and Sulu and Uhura talking to Lokai in the other, I guess, the crew's canteen, the crew meeting room. I'm not really sure what that is. I found it really significant that it's Sulu who says, oh, yeah, I read about that kind of racism in the 20th century. I think it's significant that George Takei gets to say that line.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: I mean, because he wasn't an internment.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. Which I, I, I think maybe that was an attempt to say, by the way, racism isn't just white and black or just, I mean, it is just white, but it's not white against just black people. They can be racist against lots of people. They're really good at that, I think. So I guess Star Trek has like a canteen. So this is one of the big differences between Star Trek and Star Wars. In Star Trek, you have a canteen where people talk about serious ideological issues. And then in Star Wars, we have a cantina where a cool alien race plays neat, like, 70s disco music. And people shoot each other and then get their arms chopped off with laser swords. And the smuggler always, always, always shoots first. And they're racist against droids. So again, Star Wars for the win.
0: Well, we also get, we got a glimpse of this a few episodes ago where Spock shows kind of like when we were talking about Day of the Dove and they're all devolving to their most primal instincts or whatever, and we see Spock start to be affected by it as well. We got a little bit of hint of this. I think this might be the first time that he actually just straight out says it in the conversation with Lokai, where he talks about the history of Vulcan And the fact that they were incredibly violent, incredibly brutal, had a lot of race racism problems, although he doesn't really specify what that looked like on Vulcan, that they almost destroyed each other the way that Arianus, then we realize later, is destroyed. But that logic is the thing that united them, that helped them keep those baser instincts in check. I think that this introduces an idea that will be a thread throughout the entire Star Trek series, that the Vulcans are real messed up. And the logic is the only thing that keeps those instincts at bay, that if they lose that logical control, things get bad really fast. What do you think about that introduction of this particular piece of Vulcan history?
1: I guess the thing about that is, is you know, it, it's fun that the Vulcans are logical and they, they do their little sex dance so they don't, like, you know explode when they orgasm i guess i don't know like great good for you it does raise a question though and the question for me is like can you claim to be highly evolved when you have to like deny a part of yourself to be highly evolved i mean that's the great thing about spock right he's half human so he has emotions that's what makes him cool he has the emotion of love for his captain. And that's what we like about it. And that's why you always go on about your stupid thruple. So, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like that's a good thing. I don't feel like this speech is good. Because it reinforces the idea that the only way to really figure this out is to conquer your emotions. And Kirk is literally in the room. Unchecked, it is sitting there going, bro. Come on.
0: Well... I mean, I didn't have the same take. I didn't have the same take on that scene. I think that you did because for me, it, it reinforced the idea that, like, I, I like you. I think it's a little problematic to say base emotions are terrible, <laughs> but I think for Spock, the idea was this is illogical, and we realized it was illogical, so we swung towards logic because we were going to destroy ourselves otherwise. At one point, it, I, this is one of my favorite Kirk moments. Is in this episode though, where. Bele takes control of the Enterprise through some unexplained mind control situation to try to take it back to Ariana's, And Kirk literally is like, I will destroy this ship rather than let I am the captain. And if I'm not the captain, I would rather see the Enterprise die. And they almost actually do the self-destruct sequence. I have to ask you, first of all, what did you think about this I'm not in your room? Like, ABC, Kirk. <laughs> And second of all, what did you think about the fact that basically the password to destroy the Enterprise is one, two, three, four?
1: You know how much I love ABC. <laughs> you know how much I love it. That's why like, I'm like, take the Harley Quinn character with you. Yes. Make, But I don't know. You've got a bunch of no names up on the bridge. You don't even have to replace one of the good ones. Just get rid of the ones we don't care about and have ABC up on the bridge with you because that's a vibe, and I love it. I love it when unchecked it just goes full big turd energy. I love it. That's why we can't get rid of emotion. That's why we can't just do logic. We have to have the true assholes in the room <laughs> do their work. Trolling can be used for good, and Captain Kirk really is the best example of that. What was that? Now, why is the password 1234? Well. What did you think it was gonna be? Like Kurt can remember a password. <laughs> yeah, I know. In the previous episode, it was like a big chess, three D, super strategic chess move that nobody could possibly know except for him. And he did the 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 Kobayashi circle thing. I don't care. He obviously somebody uses one two three four as his password. Or when he can't use one two three four, he uses password as his password. <laughs> Anyway, this has been the Star Trek Anti-Racist Recap Happy Hour. Thank you for attending.
0: All right, that's it for today. Join us next time for more Sam Watches Star Trek. We will be discussing Season three's The Mark of Gideon and That Which Survives. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper.